Welcome to Practical Christian Living. There are those who believe that once you make a commitment to Christ, you raise your hand, you go forward in church, you begin to attend church, then you have a genuine salvation experience, then you are never in danger of losing or leaving your salvation. There are others who say, no, you've got to remain with Christ and that the fruit is what's important. And if you don't remain with him, then you're, you're no longer following him and you need to recommit yourself. Many will argue, is salvation a certainty for those who walk away from Christ? Can it ever be lost? Or, once saved, are you always saved? Today on Practical Christian Living, we look at what it means to not only choose to follow Christ, but to abide in Christ. We go further into Hebrews chapter 6. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary Tucson. Father, we want to thank you again for your word. You've said in several places, a couple of places in Scripture, that grass withers and flowers fade, but your word endures forever. And that your word will accomplish what you sent it out to accomplish. And that it's alive and active. It's like a seed that once it's planted in our lives, it produces and it works in the lives of those who believe. It's the milk and meat, the lamp, the light by which we live. And so we thank you that we can take time to turn to your word now. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and help us to take these truths and apply them. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title of our message today is Don't Cross the Line. There is a line out there as Christians that we don't want to get close to. The passage that we're covering today tells us not to cross that line. The passage falls into the category of warnings in Scripture. There are many warnings in Scripture, by the way. A couple examples of warnings. 1 Timothy 6.10 warns us that we do not love money. It tells us that you can stray from the faith if you have a love for money. It doesn't mean, by the way, that you have to have money to love money. You can be as poor as can be and love money. You can be wealthy and love money. The love of money have caused many to stray from the faith, 1 Timothy 6.10 tells us. There's another warning in Hebrews 12.15 that warns against a root of bitterness that defiles many. There's another warning in 1 Timothy 1.19 that warns against being shipwrecked in your faith because of a bad conscience towards God. In other words, a lack of sincerity, that you've got hypocrisy in your life. You're not really sincerely living for God. You're living for Him, but you're kind of playing games. And that many have become shipwrecked in their faith by not having a good conscience towards God. We want to have everything that we can confess and repent laid out before Him so our ship can sail in the waters of Christianity uh, until the end of our journey. And we want to avoid that shipwreck. Now, I need to say that the passage that we're covering today, this warning we find in the pages of Scripture, is one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible. I don't know if that makes you excited today or not. Oh boy, we're going to cover one of the toughest passages that we can find in all of Scripture today. And pastors, Bible teachers, will openly say, I don't like this passage. I've heard many studies, I've been in many studies on this text where pastors have started the study by saying that. I don't like this passage, but we got to cover every passage in the Bible, so here we go. I want to say, first of all, I'm not in that category. I love this passage. Not just because it's difficult, but because it brings some clarity. 
And not just because it brings some clarity, which it does, but because it makes us think. If there was never a difficult passage in the Bible, if everything was always really easy, oh, 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 oh. Oh, if there was never any controversy about what a passage says, then we would not dive into it. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians that there are differences among us that the truth might be known. Because of this passage, there are scriptures that I have gone and studied to add to some kind of disagreement I've had over this passage. In other words, I've spent more time in the Word of God because of the disagreements that we have in the Bible. And you do the same thing. You'll, you'll have a disagreement with somebody at work about what the Bible says, and you'll go home, and you'll study it more, and you'll learn more of the Word of God because of those differences. So I love passages like this, not because they're difficult, but because they bring clarity, and they really cause us to go, what does it mean? And that we would pour ourselves into it a little bit more. Now, I also want to say that I am not concerned with man's theology. I'm not concerned with church doctrine. I'm not concerned with biblical doctrine that's been developed by an individual. In other words, we grow up in churches that teach us certain things. Maybe we attend a church for a while that teaches certain church doctrines. And we might, because we've heard that week after week after week, we might have a bent towards it. There is no church that doesn't end up having a certain set of doctrines. Calvary Chapel among them. There are certain distinctives or certain doctrines that we have in Calvary Chapel. And that will cause us to look at the Bible in a certain way. My challenge to you, to me, is that we would approach a text not based on the church doctrine that we have, but based upon what the text says. Systems of theology are simply man trying to put into order what God says. It's like when you take your budget and you want to try to figure it out, so you do a system to try to clarify the budget. And when it's all done, you might look at that page that has your budget in. And if you've never done this, by the way, you probably want to do it at some point. But you write that, after you wrote that budget out, you look at it and you go, yeah, I don't know whether it's really going to work, but yeah, I understand where my finances are going better now. That's what theology is. Theology is a system by which we organize the truths of God to help us understand it. And different theologies are different systems by which men organize them. And different theologies disagree with each other about the way that they should be organized or about what should be in there. I say that because this particular passage goes against some people's theology. And when your theology doesn't agree with the Bible or your doctrine doesn't agree with the Bible or your church doctrine doesn't agree with the Bible or what you believe doesn't agree with the Bible, the Bible wins. We want to approach it saying, I want to know what the Bible says. What did it mean to them? What did it mean in their culture? How were they supposed to respond to it? How did they respond to it? How am I supposed to respond to it? What does it mean to me in my life? That's how we want to approach the Bible. We don't want to approach the Bible saying, well, I believe this, and this says the opposite of what I believe, so how can I get this to fit into what I believe? We don't want to do that. It would be great if we could read this passage for the very first time. Regardless of where we came from, regardless of where our, our roots are. Now, this difficult passage that I'm talking about covers one of the tensions in the church of our day. There are certain doctrines that create tension within the church. This is one of them. And it falls in line with the once saved, always saved doctrine. 
There are those who believe that once you make a commitment to Christ, you raise your hand, you go forward in church, you begin to attend church, then you have a genuine salvation experience, then you are never in danger of losing or leaving your salvation. There are others who say, no, you've got to remain with Christ and that the fruit is what's important. And if you don't remain with him, then you're no longer following him and you need to recommit yourself and come back to him again. So your security is in Christ where others would say, no, your security is that you came to Christ. So one of them is saying your security is in Christ. You're walking with Christ. You're secure. The other one is saying your security is because of Christ. Once you've come to him, doesn't matter where you are in Christ or not anymore. You are secure. Now, there are good, godly men the Bible says that Bible teachers, pastors, evangelists are gifts to the body. I don't know if you guys think about me in that way, but I'm a gift to you. I mean, no. But there's also, on the national level, men that are involved in helping to shape Christian thinking, and they have been gifts to this generation. A lot of good godly men. Some of them are Calvinists, and some of them are not. Now, those who are in hyper-Calvinism will say of anybody that's not a Calvinist, they're not a Christian. And the other side, the hyper that goes the other way, will say of hyper-Calvinists that they're not Christians. It's a good thing that men don't get to choose who's Christians, okay? Men can't look at the heart. It's God that can look at the heart. Now, Calvinism basically teaches perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved. It teaches limited atonement, which is that Jesus didn't die on the cross for everybody. He only died for the elect. It teaches irresistible grace, meaning if you're chosen by God to be saved, there's no way you can be lost. You're going to be saved no matter what because you've been chosen by God. Uh, I disagree with those two points of Calvinism. That's why I'm not a Calvinist because I don't agree with limited atonement and irresistible grace. I believe that Jesus died once for all. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't say once for some, once for the elect. It says once for all. The Bible says whoever believes can be saved. The Bible says of God desiring men to be saved, that, that God desires that all men would be saved and that all men would come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible says, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. Choose life and live. I don't think that God's playing games with this choosing thing. I don't think he's going, go ahead and choose. Oop, not you. Go ahead and choose. Not you. Go ahead and choose. I said, not you. You can choose. I think if he says choose, then you have the right to choose. And I believe that there's not a person on the face of this earth that cannot choose to follow Christ today. I believe if they will come, God will receive them. Uh, I also believe that God's sovereignty plays a part in it. On the other side, Arminianism. I'm not an Arminianist. There's a lot of things in Arminianism I can't agree with. Arminianism teaches that in man, there's something good. And that we've got to get that something good and give it to God in order to be saved. I don't believe there's anything in us that's good. I believe God's the one who's done the work. He's the one that calls us. And all we have to do is believe to be saved. And that's just receiving. That's not a good work, okay? So Arminianism will connect works with salvation. You guys know I disagree with that. You also know with Calvinism that I disagree with the idea of limited atonement. So it's really funny. Arminianists will say, you're a Calvinist. And Calvinists will tell me, you're an Arminianist. And I go, nope. Neither one. I don't align myself with any of them and I will not allow you to pigeonhole me in any way, shape, or form. I don't agree with Arminianist teaching and I don't agree with Calvinistic teaching. I believe in what the Bible says and studying it. That's not trying to say that I see myself as better than what they are or, or right or wrong, but I wouldn't believe it if I didn't think it was right. I wouldn't believe in what it says if I didn't think I was right. Now, I wanted to kind of give you an idea of the men that are gifts to us as a nation, 
in the world who believed in one or the other. I'm going to start with those who lean away from Calvinism. You will find as you study different people's beliefs that it's like a meter. Some will lean more towards Calvinism and some will lean more towards Arminianism. And then you've got those guys that are in the extreme and those guys are whack, by the way, on both sides. But somewhere in the middle is the truth and there's men who lean both ways. So I'm going to first by starting by giving you a list of men that lean away from Calvinism. These are men that are not Calvinists and they lean away from it. And yet they are used by God in powerful ways as gifts to the church. I'll start with Ravi Zacharias, James Dobson, Charles Stanley, Norman Geisler, Charles Swindoll, and Billy Graham. All of those men do not believe in limited atonement. They believe that anyone who comes to Jesus can truly be saved. Now that's quite an impressive list of men that God uses to reach out and minister to the Christian community. On the other side, there's another impressive list. This next list is men that lean towards Calvinism, if not pegged all the way over in Calvinism, okay? This list is John MacArthur, R.C. Sprawl, John Piper, and kind of a new pastor, Matt Chandler. These guys are used, even though they are Calvinists, they're used in great ways. And I gotta say, I gotta let you guys know where I lean in this, I think it's important, Chuck Smith, Greg Laurie, Raul Reese, Don McClure, myself, others that are used within the Calvary Chapel movement lean away from Calvinism. Although there are some Calvary Chapel pastors that lean towards Calvinism. Calvary Chapel kind of gives you the freedom as a pastor to search the scriptures and with a good conscience teach what you believe the scriptures say. So you will find kind of a range of belief about Calvinism within Calvary Chapels. It just so happens that those Calvary chapels that lean towards Calvinism are wrong. All right, so I also will tell you that uh, Pastor Chuck, who founded Calvary Chapel, has said to those that lean heavily towards Calvinism, change your name, because that's not one of our distinctives. We, are, we don't lean heavily towards Calvinism. And Pastor Chuck isn't saying you can't be a pastor to these guys. He's simply saying call your name something else because the distinctive of Calvary Chapel is to not lean towards Calvinism. Now that's going to help you to understand where we're going in our study today. All right. Now let's pick it up in verse one of chapter six. Verse one, chapter six. Therefore, leaving the discussions of the elementary principles of Christ. Paul has just said to them in chapter five, you guys are a bunch of babies. That really is a, a summary of the last portion of chapter five. By this time, you guys should be teachers, but you are in need of someone to teach you again. They should have been mature. Enough time had passed that they should have tackled the more difficult aspects of scripture. They should have been used by God, but they keep on talking about the elementary principles. They, they keep on coming back to these things. Note that he doesn't say, let us leave the elementary principles Instead, he says, let's leave the discussion of the elementary principles. We don't ever leave the elementary principles. They're our foundation. They're what we're about. He's simply saying, can we stop talking about these and go on to what's more important for us at this point? Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. The word perfection there means complete or mature. He's not saying, let's march on to become perfect. He's saying, let's head towards perfection. Let's go to maturity. Not laying again the foundations of repentance from dead works, 
Remember, he's writing to religious people. They believed before they came to Christ that dead works would save them. Paul's saying, we talked a lot about the discussion of repentance from dead works. If you've come out of a religious home, whether it's a Catholic or Lutheran or Methodist home, I came out of a Methodist home. As long as I did certain things, I was taught that I was going to heaven. None of it had to do with the relationship with Jesus, by the way. And um, if you come out of a religious home, you need to have discussions about repentance from dead works to faith in God, which is the next thing that's said here. Faith in God is the means by which you are really saved. By believing in Jesus, you're saved. That's it. There's nothing else that you can do to be saved except believe on him. If you believe, you will be saved. The doctrine of baptisms. It's not talking about the Christian ordinance of baptism. It's talking about the ceremonial washings. This word for baptism is not the same word used for baptism in other places. It's the word used for ceremonial washings. When the Jews went to the temple, they went through a series of baths and they washed themselves in ceremonial ways in order to enter in with a purity to be able to give sacrifices. They've talked about this to death. And so Paul says, let's leave the discussion of the elementary principles of ceremonial washings and of laying on of hands. Again, there is a doctrine of laying on of hands among Christianity. You lay on hands to receive the Holy Spirit. You lay hands on people for them to be healed. Uh, you lay hands on people to send them out. But this isn't talking about that, I, I don't believe. I believe it's talking about the laying on of hands in the temple. Again, in the temple, they had a whole process of which you would have hands laid on and prayed for in order to enter in and give your sacrifices. They've talked about it to death. He says, let's leave that. Two other principles that they've talked about a lot, the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. These are not shallow doctrines, by the way. Resurrection from the dead is a deep doctrine. He's not saying, let's leave these things forever. Let's just leave the discussion now. And eternal judgment, again, it's deep. And this we will do if God permits, he says. And then he gets into something that, that he wants to talk about. For it is impossible. And you may want to highlight the word impossible. You might want to underline it. It's an important word in this text. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of heavenly gifts and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him, that is Jesus, to open shame. Well, if you read that, as it says, if you read it fresh, you only get one feedback from it. That if you've done these things that they list in the beginning, you've been enlightened, you've tasted of the Word of God, you've tasted of the Holy Spirit, you've become a partaker of, of the things of God, and then you fall away, it's impossible to renew you to repentance. It's pretty clear. When you read it at face value, you go, uh, there's no really way around this. So how do people who believe that once you make a commitment to God, you can't fall away? How do they deal with this text? There's three ways in which they do it. All three of them, I think, have great weaknesses. Number one, they say that this text, starting with verse four, it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, that they're talking about being enlightened, not really being saved, have tasted, talking about people who have tasted it. They taste it, but they don't eat it. They just taste it. So they say that this is talking about people who dabble in Christianity. They've been enlightened, but they haven't received the light. They've tasted, but they haven't received it. So they're dabbling in Christianity and it's impossible for them once they dabble in it to return to repentance. Well, that's so bizarre. It makes the passage worse. It doesn't make it better, right? 
I mean, you talk about people have genuinely been saved. If they fall away, then they can't come to repentance again. But now they change it and say, if you dabble in Christianity and you fall away, you can never come back to repentance again. And to them, you go, well, that's weird. Are you really willing to say that every person that's ever dabbled in Christianity, it's impossible to bring them to repentance? And then they say, that's so bizarre that we know that can't be what it's saying. So they make it say something that's so outlandish, and then they go, okay, so we know it's not saying that because that's too outlandish. That can't be the case. But I believe that those statements tasted... You can look in Scripture and see how the word is used in other places and learn from the context. So the word tasted is used in another place, a couple other places, but it's used to say in Hebrews, Jesus tasted death for every man. When it says he tasted death for every man, it doesn't mean that he tasted it and then excluded himself from death. It means he tasted it and died. So this word tasted is used. It's never used, by the way, as tasted and not received it. It's always used as in tasting it to eat it. Just because you taste something doesn't mean you didn't need it. That's what they're trying to say. Well, they tasted it and didn't need it. No, they tasted it and they ate it. It's saying the opposite. This is a genuine saved person. This is a person that has had a genuine salvation experience. That's the statement that's being made. The next way that they deal with it, what I call kind of biblical gymnastics. Well, this verse is hard. It doesn't fit into my theology, especially if you're a Calvinist. This verse is difficult. It doesn't fit into my theology. What do I do with it? Well, verse six, Charles Riley dealt with it this way. It says, if they fall away. And then so Charles Riley says, well, that's if. It doesn't say when, it says if. So that means it's hypothetical. This is a hypothetical situation. It can't happen. That's how Charles Riley deals with it. He says that, that this could happen, but it can't happen. It's impossible. So it's never going to happen. So don't worry about it. My problem with that is, why is there a warning in scripture that's hypothetical? Why would God warn us of something that can't possibly happen? That doesn't make sense to me. As I approach the scriptures honestly, I say, eh, I can't honestly say that. If you're leaving church today and you go down and catch the freeway there on Houghton and you head on out, you're going towards Sierra Vista and you see a sign that says Elk Crossing, like you get up north in Pine Top, right? And you go, what idiot put that there? There's no elk down here. There's no elk in, in Southern Arizona. They're all up north. No one would put a sign up unless there's something wrong with that individual. Or unless the sign company paid off the city. I don't know. I don't know. There'd have to be something funky about it, right? Because generally, generally, signs aren't put up for no reason. Warnings are there because there's a reason. When there's a lot of accidents that happen on a certain corner, one of the ways they solve that is by putting up signs. You know, they'll put up something, a sign around the corner. There's a signal light ahead. They put that sign up there because somebody came around the corner too fast, didn't notice the signal light, and had a crash. And so they put the warnings there. God isn't wasting time. God isn't going, listen, if you fall away, it's impossible to renew you to repentance. Just kidding. It could never happen to you. I, I don't think that the hypothetical argument is a good argument. The last argument that they use, and you see why I call this kind of biblical gymnastics, because they're trying to make something fit because it says the opposite of what their theology says. The final one is that God's really not talking about salvation here, that God's talking about your rewards so there's a passage in Corinthians that talks about your rewards being tested by fire and that you make it in. If their wood hands double, they'll be burned away. If you've done it with the right motivation, that your rewards will follow you into heaven. And so they say, what this passage is saying is that it's impossible to renew you to repentance. That's really talking about your rewards. 
Here's the problem with that. Again, it's like biblical gymnastics. Rewards are never in this context. You can't just introduce. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kgun 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.